Welcome to Living in the Light with Bible teacher Ann Graham Lotz. How do you walk with God? You walk at His pace and you walk in His direction. Or you're not walking with God and believe you me, He doesn't accommodate Himself to you. You have to accommodate yourself to Him. And how do you know at what pace He's walking? How do you know where He's going? We're glad you've joined us for Living in the Light with Ann Graham Lotz. Anne has part two of a message from her series on the Holy Spirit, and it's titled, The Holy Spirit, His Problem, Your Self-Esteem. Last time, we were reminded that we are born sinners and that spiritual pride naturally springs up. Today, our teacher will offer some ways to replace self-esteem with godly attributes. Let's join Anne now. In Romans chapter seven, in verses 14 to 25, we see Paul beginning to try harder in his Christian life. I mean, he's going to fully commit himself to living a life that's pleasing to God, and he's just going to tackle this thing. And so he stays in his Bible study, and he stays in Sunday school and church, and he's newly committed to give up the sin of covetousness, and he's just going to try harder at this and, and make it more of a priority, and found that the more determined he was to live the Christian life, the more determined he was to live a life pleasing to God, the more discouraged he became when he failed. Because the harder he tried, the harder he fell when he couldn't follow through. It's like the Wright brothers' plane. You remember the first airplane that was built was flown off of the Outer Banks in North Carolina, off of Kitty Hawk. And the Wright brothers went down there and flew this little plane, and they flew it along the beach. And you know, even the most successful flight of that first plane only went like 100 feet. I mean, it went up and it flew 100 feet and then it came right back down. It was pulled down by the law of gravity. So even the flight they considered successful came back down because of the law of gravity. And Paul said, in my Christian experience, I've discovered that within me, there is a spiritual law of gravity. And I can go along trying harder and working harder and, and I can go for maybe a day, two days, three days, maybe even a week. But always in the end, I come right back down, pulled down by that spiritual law of gravity, the sin within my members, that old nature, that spotty circle, that's always seeming to defeat me and, and pull me down. So Paul begins to, to battle with this old nature. And you see the intensity of his struggle, he goes through three cycles now, and they're like ripples in a pond, and each one is more intense and bigger and worse than the one before. So the first cycle is in verses 14 to 17, when he decides, I can be a Christian, and I can live this Christian life, and I can be pleasing to God, I can have power and victory in my life, if I just set the right priorities. So he said, I've just got to set the priorities in my life and get them in line, and then I can do it. So in verse 14, he says, I know that Bible study is spiritual, but I'm not. I'm sold as a slave to sin. He was acknowledging that spotty circle in his life that he had an old nature. So he's acknowledged the fact that he's saved, but he's also a sinner. However, in verse 15, I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do, and what I hate, I do. I've set the right priorities, I just can't do them. And I've put some things out of my life, but they seem to keep coming back in. And he says, the more I want to do the right thing, the more I do the wrong thing. And the more I don't want to do the wrong thing, the more I do it. I've just got to work on my water. I've just got to strengthen my water. I just have to go to more seminars and talk to somebody about their priorities. You know, you're always talking to people. What are your priorities? Maybe that's the secret. If I just have the right priorities, and in the end, Paul acknowledges that the secret to power and fullness and victory in the Christian life is not setting the right priorities. 
It's not working on your water. He worked as hard on that as you could and he came up empty. Frustrated, failing. The secret is not wanting it badly enough. That wasn't the secret. So secondly, he decides, well, if it's not setting the right priorities, it must be that it's doing the right activities. So in verses 18 to 20, he decides that he's just going to get busy and do some things in the Christian life. You know, you set your priorities, then you've got to step out in service, and you've got to put action to your faith, and your faith without works is dead, so he started working. And so in verse 18, he finds, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my old nature, in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. I have not only set the right priorities, but I'm seeking to do the right activities. I just can't follow through. And I can do it one day, but I don't do it the next day. In other words, I'm inconsistent in my Christian life. Do you know that experience? Have you been so frustrated that you can't have the victory and you don't have power in your life and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit and, and you know it's not setting the right priorities because you've done that and, and you're working yourself to the bone. Maybe in your church you're the one who's carrying the bulk of the responsibility, doing more than anybody else, convinced that if you do it and put legs to your faith, somehow that will give you the victory. And Paul wore himself out doing, working, filled his life with all sorts of Christian activities until finally he makes that confession in verse 18, I know in me is no good thing. It's not the priorities and it's not the activities. God, what could the secret be? Would you be willing to acknowledge that in you there's no good thing? That's a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? Didn't you think you were sort of good when you sent Christmas cards to people who didn't send them to you? <laughs> When you took that hot meal to that homebound person, or maybe when you did something else, you visited somebody in the hospital or in prison, and, and you just thought to yourself, well, now that was really good of you. And the Bible tells us that even the best things we do are so permeated with sin and wrong motives that they're no good, just filthy rags. And Paul was coming to the conclusion by experience that in him was no good thing. So he decided there was one more thing to try, and I feel the panic is building in Paul. He wants so desperately to live a life of victory and power and fullness. He wants to overflow. Oh, the Apostle Paul wanted to be filled so that he could overflow. And he was afraid if it wasn't going to be this third thing, he would be totally defeated. And so he said, God, if it's not setting the right priorities and if it's not doing the right activities, it's got to do with my motivation. It has to do with with my aims and my attitudes and oh God let it be this because if it's not this I don't know what I'll do so in verse 21 he says I find this law at work when I want to do good evil is right there with me so I've decided in my inner being I will delight in God's law I'm going to choose to love God's word I'm going to choose to read it and I'm going to choose to study it and I'm going to choose to get into it and but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And Paul said that it isn't my motivation. It's not the secret. Because I'm motivated to please God. I delight in His Word. With all my heart, I want to live a victorious, powerful Christian life. And I'm bound by sin. You know, have you ever lost your temper and you didn't want to? 
then you're enslaved to the temper, right? Have you ever worried and you didn't want to? You're enslaved to the worry. Have you ever had a nasty thought and you didn't want to? Then you're enslaved to that nasty thought. Do you see, we talk about freedom of speech and free will and being free, and we're not free at all, are we? We're enslaved to what Paul described as the law of sin within him, the way the other parts of Scripture describe as that old nature that binds you. And Paul said, just knowing that Jesus has died to take away my sin, that he's risen from the dead to free me from my sin, makes my defeat that much worse. I know I've been died for. I know I have the power of the resurrection in me. Why is it that I live such a life of defeat? Why am I struggling so with sin? Why am I bound to it? Verse 24 is the emotional outburst of a man who is acknowledging his total failure to live a, a Christian life. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? In the Roman days, in Paul's day, when a person murdered another person, they would take the dead body and strap it to the murderer, face to face, chest to chest, arm to arm, body to body, leg to leg, and put them out in the hot sun. Very unpleasant experience to be bound to a body of death. And Paul says that's nothing compared with being bound to your old nature. You want so much to be free. You want so much to live a life pleasing to God and to have victory and power and to be filled and overflow and you're bound. Who will set me free? from the old nature. Who will set me free from the body of death? What is more wretched than wanting to live a life pleasing to God? And the harder you try, the more you fail. And that word wretched is the word that's used to describe a soldier after battle. Total exhaustion. Absolutely exhausted. Have you reached that point in your Christian life? absolutely exhausted from trying to please God, serve God, be the kind of mother your children want you to be and the wife your husband wants you to be and, and all you've done is wear yourself out. Have you struggled against admitting that you're a failure? Would you admit that? Are you afraid to admit that you're a failure in the Christian life? You know, there's an instinctive fear about that. Are you afraid to admit that you're a failure? Because if you admit that you're a failure, that you can't be a Christian and you can't live a Christian life, that God will somehow blame you. Well, I wish I hadn't died for you. If that's the best kind of life you can live, then it was just all a wasted effort. You're afraid that if you admit that you're a failure, God can't use you. Well, I just can't trust you. If you fail like that this time, then you're going to do it again, and I'm sorry. And that somehow if you admit your failure, that would be the downfall in your Christian life. In fact, you look around you and you're sure something's wrong with you because nobody else is going through this. And you look at these other lovely Christian women and you think, well, something must be wrong with me. Something is wrong with me. But I've had women come and confess that to me with embarrassment and humiliation because they think they're different from other people. When actually it may be that other people just haven't reached this point yet, or maybe they have and they refuse to admit it.
All we are in God's sight are saved sinners. All we can ever be in God's sight are saved sinners. Would you admit that and acknowledge that? I'll tell you why it's so important. It's when you admit and acknowledge your failure before God that deliverance begins. That's the first step to freedom and to victory and to power and to fullness. Let me illustrate it from a dramatic story in the Old Testament. Jacob was a man who desperately wanted the blessing of God in his life. He desperately wanted, as we would describe in the New Testament, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to have God's power and God's promises and God's blessing. And so he went about getting it in a lot of wrong ways. First of all, he stole the birthright from his brother Esau, and Esau said, Jacob, I'll kill you. So Jacob had to run away from home. So Jacob takes up and, and goes back. But before he comes to the promised land, he decides to send a note to his brother Esau and tell his brother Esau that he's coming. So he sends this little note to his brother Esau, and basically it says something like, Esau, I am a great man now, and I have many wives and many children and many flocks and herds, and although everything you have is mine because I have the birthright, you can keep what you have because I have a lot more and I don't need what you have, and most arrogant little note. And he sends it ahead by a servant to Esau, and the servant comes back and says, Jacob, your brother didn't send you a note in return. He didn't say anything, but he's coming towards you with 400 armed men. After 20 years, Esau filled with hate for Jacob. So Jacob gets down on his knees and he prays, and God gives him some wisdom as to what to do. And they come to the Jabbok River, which is the border of the Promised Land, and he sends his family and his herds and his servants across the Jabbok River, and then he stays back to pray a little bit more. Then I can hear old Jacob, and I'm reading into it, but Jacob's saying, well, you know, God, we've been through some tough times before, haven't we? And we've handled some hard lessons, and, and I know you and I together can do this. I know I can do it, and I'll just face Esau, and I'll take care of this, and I'm going to go into the promised land. I'm going to claim what you have for me. I'm going to claim your blessings and your promises and your power. And he just pulls himself up, and he steps into that Jabbok River, and it's at nighttime, and there's a man standing in the middle of the Jabbok River. And the man won't let Jacob pass. Who is it? One of Esau's men? A local native? And Jacob decides he's not going to let this man interfere with him, and so he tries to push the man aside, and the man won't be pushed. And the man begins to struggle with Jacob, and Jacob with the man, and Jacob begins to wrestle and to struggle with this man in the middle of the Jabbok River. wonder how long it was before Jacob discovered he was in God's grip, wrestling with God. And even after he realized that he was struggling with God, he still struggled. God, I'm not going to let go. I know I can go into the promised land and I can take it and I can live this Christian life and I can be a person that you want me to be and I can be a man of God and I'm just going to go and you and I together can do it. And they wrestled all night. Early in the morning, God reached down and just touched Jacob's thigh broke his leg, showed you how patient God had been with Jacob all night. And then Jacob not only couldn't walk into the promised land, he couldn't even stand on his own. Most of us would have collapsed into the Jabbok River just crying and saying how miserable we were and how defeated and how we were such failures. And you know what Jacob did? He just put his arms around God's neck. And he said, God, 
bless me. I want your blessings in my life and I want to be filled with your power and I want to know your promises. Bless me. And God said, what is your name? And this is my paraphrase. Jacob said, God, my name is self-esteem. My name is, I can do it. My name is, I can claim your promises and I can get your blessings into my life. And God said, all right, now that you've acknowledged that, and that hasn't gotten you anywhere, I'm going to change your name. Your name will be Israel, a man who knows the power of God in his life because the man is totally surrendered to God's control. Jacob limped up out of the Jabbok River. Sun was coming up. I can imagine him going into Rachel's tent and Rachel saying, Jacob, where were you? I've been worried about you. And Jacob, what's happened to you? Why are you limping? And Jacob saying, Rachel, last night I wrestled with God and I finally let go of my self-esteem. And I claimed the blessing of God in my life by letting him replace my self-esteem with himself. And Rachel, I'll never walk the same again. How long have you been battling with letting go your self-esteem? I think I can live the Christian life. I can do it if I just try harder, if I'm just more disciplined, if I just set the right priorities, if I do the right activities, if I have the right motivation. Jacob had a Romans 7 experience. And at the end, God broke him. And you know, I was talking with some people about a week ago, and, and I'm not sure you can get out of Romans 7 without being broken. Because we clutch so tightly to that banana, we don't willingly give it up. Unless God would bring something into our lives to break us. Are you willing to be broken? Broken of your self-esteem and your self-reliance and your independence of God. All I can say is, if you're at that point, don't stay there. Don't collapse in the Jabbok River feeling sorry for yourself, that you're broken and you're a failure, and move on into the Promised Land. Move on into Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 gives you the key, but it follows Romans chapter 7 when you have let go of your self-esteem, then you let God replace your self-esteem with three things. But I would point out to you that God has no self-improvement plan, but he has a Christ replacement plan. That's the difference. That's the key. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? After you have struggled and you've admitted your failure and you've been broken of your self-esteem, therefore, there is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about the condemnation to hell. He's talking about the condemnation to live a life of failure. You're not condemned to live a life of defeat. You don't have to stay in Romans chapter 7. Come on! Get out! Come into chapter 8. There's no condemnation. You do not have to live in Romans 7. You don't have to be a failure. You are a failure. But God has given you the Holy Spirit that you need. Never fail. You see, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The first thing that you replace your self-esteem with is confidence in Christ. Verse 3, 
talks about him giving his life. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. All the sin that the scriptures reveal in your life has been forgiven. And so when that sin comes back to your consciousness and when you commit it, you just come back to the cross and confess it and say, thank you, God, I've been forgiven. And even as your sin is revealed, you let it build your confidence in the death of Christ to take away your sin. And not only is your confidence in Christ's death, but your confidence in Christ's life when it says that he condemned sin and sinful man. And how did he do that? By living a life on this earth in his humanity that was perfect, completely righteous. And when you come to the cross and you give God your sin, he gives you the righteousness of Christ. So not only do you have forgiveness of sin, you have holiness and righteousness in God's sight. So as this sin is revealed in your life, and you let go of your self-esteem, and you know I am saved, but I'm nothing but a sinner, and I will always be a sinner, but praise God, I've been died for, and my sin is forgiven, and I have the righteousness of Christ, and your confidence is in Christ, in his death and in his life. And secondly, you replace it with a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, do you see that now we're living the Christian life and you're living a successful, victorious, powerful, filled life when you don't live according to the sinful nature but you live according to the Spirit and you're dependent upon the Spirit. I told you about the Wright Brothers' plane that even in a successful attempt was pulled back down by the law of gravity. But every few minutes we hear planes going overhead and very rarely is one pulled down. Why? Power is the difference. And you can live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit as you place your confidence in Christ and your dependence upon the Holy Spirit to live that life through you. Do you see that God will never ask of you anything that the Holy Spirit cannot do in and through you? In other words, all of God's expectations are in that new nature, in that inner circle. The only thing he ever expects of the outer circle is failure. He never expects you to do anything, be anybody except the failure and the sinner that you are. But he has great expectations of the Holy Spirit within you. And as the Holy Spirit within you, as you live your life in him, dependent upon him, that will enable you to live this Christian life that you so desire. Confidence in Christ, dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and obedience to God's word. In verse 4, it talks about walking after the Spirit. And all through this chapter, walking after the Spirit. Three days a week or four days a week, I walk with Marjorie. And we walk about two miles at a time. And we have two basic rules. If we're going to walk together, we have to walk at the same pace and in the same direction. <laughs> or we're not walking together, right? How do you walk with God? You walk at His pace and you walk in His direction. Or you're not walking with God. And believe you me, he doesn't accommodate himself to you. You have to accommodate yourself to him. And how do you know at what pace he's walking? How do you know where, where he's going? You've got to spend time in his word. And you have to spend time in prayer. Or you're not going to know where he is going or, or how fast he's going. So verse 4 implies an obedience to God's word. Paul said, I discovered the key to victory when I let go my self-esteem and I let God replace it with confidence in Christ and dependence upon the Holy Spirit 
in obedience to the Word of God. In other words, God simply replaced my self-esteem with Himself. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, When you invite me to come into your life, we will come in, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you have the fullness of the Godhead living within you. But God will not be free to live his life in you and through you until you've let go your banana. This has been Living in the Light. Please take advantage of all the free resources at angramlots.org to help and encourage you in your walk with God and in your study of His Word. Join us here each week for Living in the Light.